0: It seems like terrorism is everywhere these days, and thankfully we have some really good people in the media giving us some information on it. Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Canada, and you're listening to An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, which is a podcast, not surprisingly, about all things terrorism. So when I worked in security intelligence, as I did for 32 years... It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that we had a rather non-relationship with the media. For obvious reasons, we dealt in a classified world with very secret information, and we were not allowed to, to talk to the media. Although organizations such as CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, with which I worked for 15 years, did have a sort of liaison relationship with the media, but it was very circumscribed. And not a lot of information w- w- was let out, which must be really frustrating to those who work in journalism and work in terrorism because they want as much information as possible. Since my so-called retirement from the security intelligence world in 2015, I have uh, come to know an awful lot of journalists, both here in Canada and abroad, who focus on terrorism in their files. And I must say that the, one of the, the, the top journalists that I've come to know over the years, we actually met personally a couple of years ago in the UAE, is Eric Schmidt from the New York Times. Now, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. He's definitely one of the best out there when it comes to terrorism. And I'm absolutely thrilled that he has agreed to join me for a conversation today. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. Let's go back to first principles then. You've been a journalist for quite some time. What is it that uh, led you to become a a specialist in terrorism and national security issues? And how long have you been doing this this gig, uh, Eric? Sure. Well, again, thank you very much for having me on this podcast, Phil.
1: It's an important subject. Uh, I actually got into uh, the terrorism coverage, uh, not necessarily by accident, but by evolution. I had been a national security and Pentagon reporter for The New York Times, uh, started my New York Times career as a news clerk, actually, way back in 19... Eighty-three and worked a news my clerk. Way wow, you yes. you made
0: your way all the way up the ladder to be right. a news clerk.
1: Made <laughs> my way up through kind of in uh, entry level entry level reporting jobs in the business desk and metro desk in New York City, and then got an offer to come to the Washington D.C. bureau of the New York Times back in nineteen ninety uh, to cover the military, cover the Defense Department, uh, with the notion that it would uh, cover the end of the Cold War and the peace dividend that they would suspect would follow. Uh, that of course ended up. Uh, playing out in a series of conflicts uh, that that, uh, played out over the next several years. Uh, I went on to cover Congress and politics for the New York Times in Washington in the mid and late 90s, Uh, and then, of course, 9-11 became a a real uh, stepping stone into the the current beat that I have, terrorism, Uh, and basically, again, covering, stepping back into for my second tour as a Pentagon correspondent and spending a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, covering the uh, US campaign there. Uh, I briefly covered some other domestic uh, politi- political subjects, uh, but it was really uh, covering the military full time. I took a break, uh, a fellowship at Stanford in 2006 and 7. when I came back, uh, the editors of the paper decided that they wanted someone who could cover uh, terrorism holistically at the time we were covering the beat uh, very ably but through uh individual beats the FBI reporter would cover some of it the Pentagon reporter would cover some terrorism issues and so on the justice department the state department and the idea would be to have one person uh who could kind of uh, span these different agencies both domestically and internationally and cover the beat holistically kind of the uh as still al-Qaeda, of course, back then was still very much the threat. So that's uh, in, in 2007 when I came back from my leave. That's how uh, this beat started with a focus on al-Qaeda and uh, spent a lot of time, uh, this time, in Pakistan, up, in, up in, in and around the tribal areas there. And then, of course, after the death of bin Laden, uh, kind of watching as the beat morphed uh, away from al-Qaeda and into eventually the Islamic State and where we are today with both ISIS and Al-Qaeda, of course, among other terrorist groups around here. In the middle of that, a colleague of mine, Tom Shanker, also wrote a book about the evolution of U.S. counterterrorism policy called Counter-Strike, uh, which will be celebrating its 10-year 10, 10 anniversary soon. So it's uh, it's been a good run.
0: I'm glad you talked about the fact that 9-11 obviously was an important part in your career. We, of course, date the ill-named, in my opinion, war on terrorism from that date. We've been uh, apparently at war with a concept for the better part of 20 years. In all the reporting that you've done, Eric, and if you could reflect on how it's going, and this is obviously a very general question to ask someone like you, but, Given your time, you've you spent time in, uh, in Pakistan. You've you've really been up close to this kind of thing. What what lessons? What what takeaways do you have from this approach that we've adopted in the West? That we're suddenly at war with a concept like terrorism. How is it going? I guess is what I'm trying to ask you.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously, I think you've captured it right, Phil. As, as obviously, as a professional covered this for so many years, you know this is a an issue that is not just fighting a an ideal here, but it's fighting uh, in many ways. Uh, local groups uh, uh, that, are, that have local grievances, oftentimes legitimate grievances, and they're seized upon by larger international and transnational organizations, such as the Islamic State or uh, Al Qaeda. And I think if you were to take a snapshot today and look at what's going on, you could say, in one way, you know, the, you know the, the world and the United States perhaps is safer from terrorism. We haven't had a major uh, terrorist attack in, in the United States, really since 9/11, uh, from outside forces. Of course, there still is very much the threat of domestic uh, type attacks. Uh, we've seen, like in San Bernardino and other places, come from there. Um, but the uh, ISIS has been uh, first Al Qaeda, and now ISIS have been, you know, the uh, their their physical caliphate of the uh, the Islamic State, of course, is, has been defeated in in Syria and in Iraq, but it's very much still of a global movement. And there you could say, well, there's actually a greater uh, proliferation of terrorist groups uh, terrorist entities around the world uh, than there was before 9-11. It's just much more disparate, I think. And it's very much uh, a phenomenon uh, that continues today, empowered by social media and these terrorist uh, groups' ability to spread uh, their propaganda, recruit, raise money, and even if they're defeated territorial, still maintain uh, you know, ties uh, and very effective ties in the community so that it still maintains a, a global threat and it keeps popping up in different places. Uh, my last reporting trip before the pandemic hit was to West Africa, which is experiencing a, a real increase uh, in the area of Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, in Mali, uh, where you have a confluence of, of different ISIS and al-Qaeda groups, affiliates there uh, that are virulent and taking advantage, of course, of ungoverned space, weak, weak governments, and, um, and porous borders. And uh, even though uh, governments such as the United States and France and others are trying to help these countries, it's a real, it's a real challenge. Uh, on the eastern side of the country, of course, and long-running uh, fight against the al-Qaeda affiliates, Shabaab in Somalia. Mm-hmm. But you have a new threat uh, popping up in Mozambique, in mm-hmm. uh, Cabo Delgado there. Again, local grievances seized upon and fueled there. Uh, and right now, that's that's kind of one of the, the most fast kind of emerging new uh, local uh, hotspots popping up. So... Uh, it's by no means is, uh, are these groups defeated. No, by no means is their ideology defeated. Just kind of show on the other hand how resilient this ideology can be under the
0: right conditions. I'm glad you raised this situation in, in Africa, Eric. I couldn't agree with you more in West Africa, and also this situation in Mozambique. I had the the pleasure of interviewing a, a real specialist, uh, Jasmine Operman, and she'll be on my podcast actually uh, next week, uh, weighing in on the situation in Mozambique. You refer to the fact that, you know, you did a lot of work sort of on the Pentagon beat for the New York Times. If I could ask you maybe an unfair question, do you really think that when we look at terrorism as a problem that we have to face, both at the pointy end of the stick, meaning identifying terrorists and dealing with them before they can act, sometimes if necessary by killing them, or the sort of less pointy end of the stick, and the, you've heard of the old, you know, CVE countering violent extremism and all these efforts that are out there. Do you think the military should be the point person on a lot of counterterrorism efforts, or is it better placed amongst other agencies that are not military in nature?
1: Phil, I think ideally the military should not be, you know, the lead agency for this. This is when uh, the military is brought in when all other means have essentially failed, when you have to employ. Uh, military means, and I'm mainly talking about whether it's commando operations or things such as that, uh, to beat back some of these terrorist groups. On the other hand, the, the way the strategy has evolved, uh, really kind of flowing from the Obama administration into the Trump administration, and counterterrorism policy has been rather seamless if you go from Bush to Obama to uh, to Trump now in, in, in the large regard. And and the theme here is how can a small number, a relatively small number of US troops, oftentimes specially trained special forces, uh, not necessarily engage in the enemy repeatedly, but to enable uh, indigenous forces, be they local military forces or other police and security forces to deal with these threats just as they might with uh, local gangs or things like that. But that's just one component of defeating terrorism. Obviously uh, you have to have pretty much a whole of government approach, uh, both from the American government standpoint and whatever allies you work with. Uh, You need to be working with aid organizations. You need to work on diplomacy. You need to be working on good governance because if uh, communities don't feel they have a say in their governance, whether it's at a local village or provincial level, all the way up to the national level, uh, there'll be ripe opportunities for extremist groups to exploit those fissures. And so, uh, yes, the military plays an important role, but I'm afraid it's it's oftentimes because it's so easily measured uh, how many bombs you drop, how many supposed enemies you might kill. It's not always the best way to go about uh, attacking, certainly terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State.
0: Well, you're preaching to the choir here, Eric. My, my next to last book was entitled An End to the War on Terrorism. And I did say exactly what you did. There are circumstances in which the military is the appropriate actor, but there are also many instances in which it sort of, as you said, it becomes sort of the default partner. And I'm not sure that's the, the best way to go, because yes, you know, uh, under the Trump administration, uh, Islamic State did l- lose its caliphate. It lost essentially all of its geographic uh, contiguity in, in Iraq and Syria. Yet, as you say, and as is quite obvious from what we're reading on a daily basis, ISIS is not dead. In fact, they're carrying out attacks on a daily basis in Syria and Iraq, not to mention some of the affiliates you refer to in West Africa. Of course, we you know the, the, the people in Mozambique are apparently part of the Islamic State's Central African province. And and, and it goes on and on and on. You've been at this such a long time, Eric, and this may be a hard question to answer, but are there any highlights from your particular career in reporting on terrorism around the world? Things that have really sort of stuck with you and you thought, wow, that's really, really cool or that's really, really important. And could you share some of those with us?
1: Sure. And one of these stories is not necessarily terrorist, but it was certainly covering the military campaign in Iraq. In 2003, when I spent quite a bit of time embedded with U.S. forces, including uh, just shortly after, uh, in December of 2003, when the U.S. military captured uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, Saddam Hussein, of course, dictator in, in, in Iraq, uh, was discovered in a, a small farm near his uh, longtime homeland, uh, home hometown, rather. Great, yeah. And to create, and uh, I was able to go in to uh, in with uh, U.S. Uh, forces and and see the site, and then and then snuck down into the little spider hole, little no hike.
0: way. You were an was saying hidey hole.
1: Yeah, when the when the M.P.s were looking, I pulled the rug back. He <laughs> was hiding down in a shaft. It was kind of a scrape, and was able to crawl into this area. And had a very bizarre. And you walk in, it was a you know concrete type bunker, but it was very narrow, for one fit for one person. And at the end of, I could stretch out, I'm a little over six feet tall, and I could stretch out in the end of this chamber. And at one end of the chamber was a small light, and the other end was a small fan. We're, all, we're about six to eight feet underground at this point. And I was basically sitting where Saddam Hussein was sitting just 24 hours earlier. So that was- Oh my
0: God, uh, that's, that's that was an amazing a pretty, story. That was that was pretty dramatic. Quite a climb down from a former dictator to, to basically be discovered sitting in a rat hole in a farm in Tikrit, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. He was on the run, you know, for for several months after the U.S. campaign went in uh, and basically was reduced to uh, uh, being shepherded around by some uh, followers. He was in local dress, you know, shabbily dressed and long, scraggly beard, as the pictures indicate when he was pulled out. Uh, So that was certainly was one highlight. But just, again, being out with, um, I think, more recently and just kind of looking at some of the counterterrorism operations, Again, in places like uh, West Africa, where you see uh, local forces, indigenous forces, without the resources that the United States has, uh, but trying to work through some of the uh, grievances on the ground, whether it be uh, you know over uh, socioeconomic issues, uh, oftentimes clashes between herders and farmers, uh, issues and those kind of things, and w- how local groups. Uh, both men and women, the, the elders of these villages can try and stave off uh, some of the influx of the ideology mm-hmm. here that I think is seizing upon many of the young mm-hmm. people in their communities who are, often are giving up. They don't have a lot of hope. They don't have a lot of education. And they see this, you know, a motorbike and some, perhaps some, uh, some money as a quick way out of this uh, despair that they have. And how Uh, how the U.S. and and working with other allies and, of course, the the local governments can try and push back on that is is a a huge
0: challenge. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that, unfortunately, in some of those cases, often the local forces are just as bad, if not worse, than the terrorists. I'm thinking of the Nigerian army in parts of northern northern part of the country where they seem to be just as violent and brutal against the local population which pushes some unfortunately into the arms of the extremists who will portray themselves as being the saviors as opposed to the uh, the true you know violent characters they are building on the last question eric about you know highlights during your career what about things that have had a lasting impression on you things that you've seen or you reported on which you simply can't forget either in a positive way or in a negative way what if you could share some of those
1: I think certainly if you go to a country, and I remember going to my first trip in uh, in Somalia in the early 90s, basically landing there uh, with Marines and going in uh, to a country that was uh, uh, you know, devastated by, by war there, by some of the warlords that had been taking over, but getting inside, uh, pushing out of Mogadishu and into the countryside and just being astounded what a rich and fertile country Somalia was, but because of the uh, because of the the way the warlords had basically used food and the dis- distribution of food as a weapon had kept many of these uh many of the people in poverty and so looking at how uh you know perhaps in that way you look at a a situation like Somalia where under the best intentions, the United States went in essentially in a humanitarian operation, and the first mm-hmm. part of that operation was quite successful under uh, the last days of George H. W. Bush's administration, mm-hmm. uh, the the operation, unfortunately, uh, when it was expanded under the UN mandate to go after some of these local warlords and kind of lost sight and and lost some of the leaders, I think on on the U.S. side and others who really understood the dynamics of the uh, politics on the ground in Somalia. I think, and that's where, you, of course, you ended up with the, uh, the with the militias there uh turning against the united states and you end up with the the famous black hawk down situation there and i think it's just always remembering kind of the unfortunately sometimes the hubris of the united states uh Mm -hmm. whether it's going into a country like somalia or Iraq or Afghanistan and oftentimes with you know, oftentimes the, the best intent to go in and say, we're going to re- help rebuild this country and, and oftentimes rebuilding it in the view and the eyes of how a Westerner might rebuild it with mm-hmm. large infrastructure projects that can't be maintained by the local population. They can't afford to do or don't, don't have things. And so I think it's just kind of understanding what are the natural limits uh, of American power and, and Western influence overall, I think, sometimes and how can we best as we move forward uh looking uh you know into this new century here uh, how can we you know best apply uh us uh influence not just necessarily in military ways but think again going back to using the whole whole inst- all the different mm-hmm. instruments of national security power and what might be best in terms of how you help a society uh in a, in the middle east or whether it's in in africa or somewhere else uh, that may have be suspicious of, of the United States or uh, previous American involvement. How do you help these countries help themselves in a more effective way? I think that's kind of coming away from a lot of these different conflicts where the United States maybe hasn't learned the lessons as well as they should and keep, keep making the same mistakes over and over again.
0: When I look back on my career working in security intelligence, you realize this is not a good news business for the most part. You're covering tragedies or you're trying to warn your governments of the evil intents of of other actors, be they state actors, non-state actors, does it ever get to you, Eric, covering terrorism? I mean, this is not like you're working for a good housekeeping and you're, you know, reporting on recipes or children's fairs or whatever. You're reporting on, you know, the misery of of humankind and the fact that you have some very violent people that think nothing of killing at whim. Does it ever just sort of wake up, you think, why am I doing this? Why can't I go on to the, the social beat in Queens or something?
1: Uh, you know, I'm covering this now 20 years or so, Phil, there are moments when you kind of just shake your head and go, boy, you know, how effective is this? And, and is it worth moving on to a different kind of beat? But I think as long as uh, terrorism remains a threat, and I believe it still will be, it just morphs into different uh, kind of stages and, and different kinds of, of things. It's uh, it's going to be an important uh, topic to uh, to be focused on journalistically to help focus, bring a spotlight on it uh, to readers and viewers and better understand uh, as we move more into the whole world of domestic terrorism, right wing nationalism here in the United States in Europe and elsewhere, uh, where the focus has moved away from necessarily Islamic terrorism uh, and understand, you know, how, what are the, what similarities and what differences are there here and how uh, they're both tearing apart the fabrics of their respective societies. Mm -hmm. Um, they, there are some common roots to these kind of things. So I think in that way, while this beat has morphed, certainly since I first started covering you know, terrorism specifically in 2007, different groups using much different technology uh, focus now, in, perhaps in addition to the international terrorist component, more domestic focus, how all these things it, it remains a very important story uh, as we, uh, as we move forward.
0: Well, I, for one, hope you don't leave this beat anytime soon, Eric. I've always enjoyed your reporting the New York Times. And I can't let you go without asking one last question. Of course, you know, in 24 hours or perhaps not 24 hours, maybe 48 hours or maybe 48 months. That depends on how, you're, how the voting goes tomorrow. Are you really worried that when it comes to terrorism from an American perspective, the boogeyman who's been around since 9-11, the Islamist extremists, we haven't gone away, as we have both talked about, around the world. And yet, particularly in your country, as the FBI and other organizations have reported, there is a, a shockingly worrying increase in what we generally call right-wing extremists, which is a very poor term, but it's the term that we have to do. Do you find yourself being drawn more and more into looking at that particular aspect of terrorism as your reporting career continues? Uh, I think
1: that's certainly the, the trend this would be. I fortunately have very good colleagues who... Uh, both at the the Department of Homeland Security and FBI, who are are focused on the domestic threat as well. But that's certainly an expanding field uh, for The New York Times, as my colleagues here in the U.S. and in Europe, by the way, uh, on the rise of right-wing terrorism and uh, and right-wing nationalism in places like Germany and Mm -hmm. the infiltration of the uh, right-wing supporters inside the German military, for instance, a very troubling sign of things. Very much so, so, yeah. So I think as we watch these trends, uh, that's where we uh, that's, I think, the the latest trend. Obviously, domestic terrorism has been around for a long time uh, in different forms. uh, And I think what we're now seeing is the latest iteration of that spurred on, unfortunately, by some of the president's rhetoric and support, seeming support of some of these of these kind of groups. That's not to say we won't also face a threat from Islamic terrorism, because I think that's always going to be out there. But there's been such a focus and so much resource placed Mm -hmm. on that. Uh, the U.S. and other its allies really have kind of got that down, if you will, Let's still have to be careful. I think we need uh, better tools, perhaps new legislation uh, to help authorities, not only in this country but elsewhere, mm-hmm. deal with this other kind of threat, uh, which is different uh, in, in some ways uh, and poses a, perhaps even a, a more challenging threat to the uh, fabric of the American society.
0: Yeah, I did. I've always noticed that in in your country, there's a, a curious legislative barrier, it seems, to investigating domestics as terrorism. If I, if I read your laws correctly, there always seems to have to be some kind of a foreign link to call it terrorism. And of course, you've got your First and Second Amendments that it also complicate things. I, for one, Eric, I really do hope that uh, you, you continue reporting. I, because I've been reading you for years. I, I have a, a great deal of respect for you. One last unfair question, um, and feel free to tell me to go pound sand. Any predictions on the election tomorrow?
1: You know, I'm I'm going to stay away from the prediction department. (laughs) I've I've talked to all my political colleagues about that. And I think, you know, we can all look at the, we can all look at the polls and what they suggest the trends might be, but we also in the back of everyone's mind is 2016 and, and and, and certainly that and and many of the same conditions and factors are still there. So I think we're, I, we may get some indications tomorrow night, uh, if it's a blowout, I think we'll know that. We could know that by midnight or so. We could, if You know, it's a tight election that could go on for some days. I think what you know many people fear, of course, is unrest after that. Mm-hmm. Both mm-hmm. sides have indicated they may not accept legitimacy of the election. I think that's where we have to come together as a country and really uh, try and prevent that kind of violence, which is just uh, would not be acceptable in any case.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking as a Canadian, I, I really do hope for for you and my American friends that it goes as well as it can tomorrow i think that uh, all criticisms uh, legitimate and illegitimate aside i think that the us presence on so many different levels is required so i do wish you you and your, your your fellow citizens the best and i and i hope that we do have whatever happens out of tomorrow i hope we can have some kind of a peaceful and regular you know sort of transition to whatever is going to take place in 2021 so eric thank you so so much for taking the time it's been a fascinating conversation and i think we're going to have to have a another conversation in the future on this. Sounds good, Phil. Thanks for having me. So that was my conversation with Eric Schmidt from the New York Times. Again, one of, I think, one of the premier reporters on terrorism around the world. Let me know what you think of our conversation. Have you been reading Eric's stuff? What are your thoughts on it? You can reach me on email, gmail.com, or on Twitter at Borealis Saves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more of it, go to my website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. And you can provide with your email address. You'll get a free daily digest of all the blogs and podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. Feedback on this podcast or ideas for future ones. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe.